Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, March 15th, 2013. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, webhook gotchas, reconsidering SMS, and touch-sensitive backsides. (laughs) Please stay tuned. The Niche (laughs) Podcast is next. That's an intriguing intro, I think. We're we're such mature... (laughs) Mature people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that joke is... That we're, there's going to be a lot of that joke in the tech news in the yeah. coming year, I'm sure. So, but before we get to that, let's waffle a bit. Okay. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> today was actually a... I had a very good day today. You mean yesterday. Um, well, yesterday now, yes. Since we are we are starting recording at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, I am um, in the process of finalizing some plans for an actual vacation. Cue low whistle. I know. What's the story? Can you share details? Can I share details? Um, yeah. Going to Kandanaskis for a few days in August. <laughs> are you, why are you laughing? That's the funniest name. There's like 10 jokes that you could that have like, there's so many yeah. jokes. I can't even pick one. Canon Ascus. Yeah. I'm going to guess that's in Canada. The backside. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it's uh, about an hour west of Calgary. The, yeah. the foothills of the Canadian Rockies. Wow. That sounds gorgeous, actually. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you some photos so you can be jealous. Cool. Well, that oh, I'm jealous already. Just the concept of vacation. So that that's nice. Yeah. So, dear listener, it is. We are squeezing it in for you. <laughs> it is late. We're early. And it was yes. It was it was this or nothing. So we are recording in the wee hours. Um, shall we get right into it? Sure. Excellent. Um, uh, bug report. I, I have a sort of bug report this week. I guess I have to back up and get, I, have to, I always have to give background. I like context. Yeah. So before, geez, I don't know where to start. Oh, oh. oh, we could, we could, um, we could start with how you screwed up the, the iTunes feed last week. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> That's actually a little housekeeping. So, so if you are an iTunes person, dear listener, um, I posted last week's update in a state of mild delirium and it's, and I typoed in the iTunes RSS feed. I didn't update the links to the actual recording. So you might have gone in and, uh, and, you know, tried to listen to last week's episode and got the week before's audio. So I went in and updated that and it just my personal experience, iTunes being being iTunes didn't didn't uh, recognize that change after I did make the change, so I had to actually unsubscribe from the feed and resubscribe to it before it showed up. Uh, so I don't know if you know nobody uses iTunes, though, do they? Yeah, I had the I had the same experience. Yeah, wouldn't update. Yeah, this is a shame. Yeah, it's a really bad program, frankly. iTunes, but hey, it was my mistake. 
so I can't knock them. But anyway, it's fixed now, and um, and I I don't know if did I did I then update the way the server worked after that because of that or I can't remember. Uh, it was after that um, because you were were setting up access to things for me. Right. So I hadn't hadn't previously had access to the niche site. Yeah. So the you know so it was like oh you know how how to best do that and i know for a long time i've been kind of a kind of a fast and loose edit on the server kind of guy and i oh, i i know that's a bad thing but i haven't been able to break the habit but i think this has finally done it for me um so we're thinking mm, you know i need to i need to set up access so kelly can get in and edit this stuff directly so, you know, I could have just created an account on the server and changed the permissions on the files, which is in fact what I did first. But um, I was like, well, uh, for, for a project, I needed to set up this, this sort of automatic deploy thing using uh, GitHub webhooks. And I was like, so that way, you know, like in a team environment, people can just push to GitHub and and an event will trigger on the GitHub server that sends a post message to the deployment server, the dev deployment environment to do a pull so that every time somebody pushes to get the test server automatically updates. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll set, I'll set up niche that way for niche. It's just Kelly and me. So I went in to the settings for, First, I created a, a repo for niche, which we had never done before. Um, there was never there was never like a version control version of the site. So I said, all right, first I'm going to you know get in it for the niche niche site. Created a repo on GitHub, and then I went into the webhooks uh, section of the settings, and, it, and there's this huge list of there's probably 60 different things that you can have happen when you push to GitHub. You can post the commit message to Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I wanted the webhook option where it, it sends this post request wherever and that receiver of the post message can do something based on the information. Okay, so I, so on the niche server, I set up a PHP page to receive that, um, that post message. And when it received that message, uh, just CD into the directory and do a git pull from the repo and bang, all of a sudden the site's updated. So you still have the same kind of effect where um, all your changes are going live as soon as you push them to GitHub. So you're kind of like, kind of like working on the live server because we don't have a dev server. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you wanted to, you could restrict that to where it only updates if you push to a certain branch. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you, you definitely can do that, but still, I was one step at a time. Oh yeah. For something <laughs> like this, that's not really needed, but right. niche is such a small site. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I set that up and it didn't work. I'm like, Oh God, what's going on here? Basically what ended up happening was it wasn't working in initially because, uh, when you, when PHP is executing, uh, commands on the server, it is running in this case under, uh, an Apache user. I think it was called Apache. It could have been HTTP or whatever, but it's not executing. Of course, it's not executing as me logged in via SSH. Right. Which makes perfect sense, but it just didn't, I was just stupid. It didn't occur to me. So, um, the, when the, when the post message was received by the web server, PHP would execute the, um, 
you know, CD and then get pull and it was failing silently. That's the tricky part. And I was like, what's going on? So then I'm like, oh yeah, duh. It doesn't have permission to write to the directory. So I Googled around and there's actually a lot, there are probably a half a dozen different ways to solve this and none of them are good. <laughs> you know, yes. they're all, they're either horribly insecure uh, where you, you basically just um, either update your Apache process to execute as, as like an admin user. Yeah. Go adding Apache to the sudoers file. Yeah. 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 So, something. Oh, yeah. So that was bad or like just wide open permissions on the directory. And it's just all of them were bad. So I found one that was sort of clever, which is what I did on our site. And I don't think I'm revealing any, anything too vulnerable, vulnerable by admitting this, but um, I created a, a public web directory that was like totally wide open seven, seven, seven. And I put uh, and, and when that, when the web hook uh, would send a request to my PHP page, it would create a temp file in that directory. And then I, I set up a cron tab for my, under my regular user account to check for that temp file every minute. And if it finds that temp file, then delete the temp file and do a git pull. So it's kind of hacky, um, but I think it, but I think it's of the options that I looked at, it was a secure one. Feel, feels kind of hacky, but it's also kind of clever. You know? Yeah, it, it worked. And it works. Yeah, so that's cool. Um, but it still felt kind of dirty, and I was doing it in preparation for setting up uh, as, a, as a live test of setting up a web server for a real project with an actual, you know, like a, a six-person team uh, where we really absolutely have to use Git and and you know it was like this question of like okay we're all using git that's great but how do we get our changes to the the two different web directories so there's so uh working on a project got a half a dozen people on it um designers project managers couple of developers and and there are two websites associated with the project one is for client design reviews that we do every week so it's like okay let's look at Let's look at where the code's at. And then there's like the development server where throughout the week, everybody's kind of like, um, you know, the, the internal team is kind of like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know, this is kind of buggy or whatever. So you kind of have a, a stable branch and a, and a bleeding edge branch. Yeah. And they're hosted at two different URLs uh, on the same server, though. So I'm like, all right. The so so then this gets really complicated because I don't own the web server and I don't own the GitHub account, but I'm the one that's supposed to set it up, <laughs> right? So and the the person who does own the web server is is a savvy web developer, but doesn't isn't really supposed to be doing like sysadmin on this project, right. right? Right. So it's a bad use of time. So it was like, all right, how do you know? he's not going to just send me his root password for the machine. And, you know, how do we, how do we together like set this up? How do we, uh, how do I, I have to talk him through how to do it on GitHub because it, uh, it was, there's only one administrator for the GitHub repo. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you can't like, you can add collaborators to a GitHub repo, but they don't have permission 
really do anything but either commit or not. Uh, if you have an organization, you can set up other admins, but that's not the way this was. <clears throat> so we set it up so that the web server, so that no one really is supposed to SSH into the web server. Like the web server became like a dumb mirror of the GitHub repo, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And and it sounds stupid to say it now because I should have, like, the only reason it didn't occur to me to set it up like that initially is because I'm a, an idiot and I like to work on the live <laughs> server. But if, you, if you're not working on the live server, it doesn't matter, you know, if it, like who owns the repo. So like, whatever the Apache process is, it's, it's fine because yeah. you never have to go in there and edit anything directly because that's bad anyway. Especially in a team environment when you've got a bunch of cooks in the kitchen. Right, so, everything everything has to go through to go through the Git repository. Right, it makes it adds some. I mean, you could you could pseudo in there and do some stuff, but it, what ends up happening is it, it's enough friction, at least for me, to prevent me from going in to the server and making any like live changes uh, on the dev code. So, you know, uh, so that was a good thing. So we set up the permissions on the on the server. A web server so that basically Apache owned those directories and nobody could really SSH in and mess with them. It, like the rule was don't touch the server, forget it's there. You yeah. just, just access it in a web browser. And uh, so then it's like, okay, everybody is just doing their uh, local development, local environment. Everybody was cool with that. When you push to GitHub, uh, any commits to master will go to the client facing site for design reviews. And any any commits to the dev branch will go to um, the you know the sort of bleeding edge developer testing area. And really, n no one should ever even be making uh, commits to the master branch. They're just merging stuff from dev. Yeah. Once it gets approved, so everybody's working in dev and pushing it. So okay, cool. So we get the the we get the web server set up so that Apache owns the process owns the directories and we've got the we've got a php page set up that is going to receive the the push from github okay great that works and uh and and when you hit that page directly it works and like everything was everything was working but except for when you actually would commit uh sorry when you would actually push to github it would fail so we're like oh man what what is the problem here and this the mm -hmm. it's really hard to debug because there's like no there's nothing to look at. There's yeah, nowhere yeah, there's to no look. Um, yeah, like we knew the PHP yeah. page worked, but for some reason the you know GitHub. So this was this was stupid. Um, the two sites are both behind uh, Basic Auth, HTTP Basic Auth, and as we were testing the PHP page, of course our browsers were like past the login prompt. Uh, oh, you forgot <laughs> to pass the yeah. the login credentials in the URL exactly. for the webhook. Right. So that that was just utterly idiotic. <laughs> so yeah, oops. But then this was a little more this is a little less idiotic, which is then then we were like we debated, okay, are we gonna hard code the password into the GitHub site, which is what we were that was the next option. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, let's just do that. So we did that and it didn't work. Which I think was GitHub being Smart. Uh, yeah, they were being they weren't letting us be stupid. Yeah. So 
so okay fine so then we're like all right so what we need to do is put the php page somewhere outside of those two directories but somewhere on the same server that makes sense yeah so so the 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 push page itself the page that github was pushing to wasn't behind a password right to make it publicly accessible right so that was no big deal uh so we did that and then still it wasn't working <laughs> so we were like oh all right so how come it's not doing a git pull and uh you know it took us a, a little while to figure it out but um you since so normally when you're doing a git pull you probably have yourself set up with ssh uh, with a public private key pair type of login so you don't have to always enter a password mm-hmm. and i think github actually f- forces that i don't think there's a password option um, but regardless, uh, it, it needed to be set up so that it didn't ask for a password. So, uh, again, the, the, the situation was a stupid one where the, create a, create a key pair and add it to the GitHub repo. It's so there's, yep. There's a two, two stage process. First of all, we, we had been doing Git pulls from the server, but logged in as me. So the public private key pairs were in my home directory. So when Apache ran it, Apache didn't didn't have access to my public private key pairs. It wouldn't know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, because Apache doesn't have a user directory for uh, its own. It turns out it does. Oh. It's var www. So if you put a dot ssh directory in var www, Apache will use the keys that are in there. That's very interesting. Yes, I did not I know d- that. I did not know that that was considered the home directory for the Apache user. I, I that might be. It, it, it makes sense. It but does make sense, yeah. So I don't know if that's. I don't know if it's one hundred percent the user directory, the same way that home, you know, slash home slash username is. Yeah. But it works if you put SSH keys in that directory. So uh, if you put dot a dot SSH directory with keys inside of it. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. And for the record, I didn't figure that part out. <laughs> I was going to ask you how you figured that out. That was the other guy. <laughs> so it was actually it was Josh Clark. He and he's uh, he's actually a whiz at Apache configuration. He's probably the most sophisticated Apache config guy I've ever met. So he he figured that, or he just knew that. Yeah, I feel like it's probably noted in the comments in a config file somewhere. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. But anyway, it works. So, so then we were like, all right, um, uh, let's see. I think that was it. Everything worked. So, but the the funny, I guess the funny thing for me was, I was like, oh, we'll just put in. Uh, like I had used. There, there's a bunch of different things that you can have github do after you push a commit like i said and and i've used a couple of them before like twitter and uh, a couple of other ones and th- and so when it came time to do this team site i was like oh well i'll just do that again I'll just use webhooks and it, would, it ended up being like a three-hour process of of uh you know yeah uh, googling and you know trying testing and getting two people on the phone at the same time to like debug the server simultaneously and but it ended up working out. So anyway, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a a 
Unix nerd in the audience that, in fact, I know there is. <laughs> so, yelling at their computer screen. Right yeah. Now. So, Jim, send me an email. How should I have done it? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's probably. I hope that made sense. It was really. It was. It is a lot of moving parts. It's really complicated to explain. So, I hope that I hope that will help someone. Yeah, we should um should write up a blog post. Yeah, if only to remind myself how to do it next time. Exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's how ninety percent of my how to blog posts get written. <laughs> so there you have it. That's that's the fun stuff though. Yeah, it was I actually I I do admit it was fun. <laughs> I like doing my sys admin stuff once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's Sometimes it's really fun. Sometimes it's really frustrating. Hmm. Sometimes it's both. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, yeah. It's always better than I don't know. I, I I so there's something about like dealing with Unix type stuff that you know the solution exists. You just have to find it. Yeah. As opposed to like, I don't know, like. Not to pick on Sencha Touch, but Sencha, but but I'll pick on it. Like you'll have a problem, you'll have a bug with Sencha Touch, and you're like, I there might not be a solution, you know, because it's not yeah. it's not mature compared to Unix, which has been around for like forty years. So, see, I was gonna I was gonna say Windows since you were talking Unix, but you know, uh, Windows. <laughs> what's that again? Yeah, what's that? Anyway, <laughs> it's moving right it's along. That thing that has that browser that we don't like to test on. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll hold my tongue. I'm, I'm about to sing the praises of Windows 8 and Windows Phone 8, but I won't. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like them, but anyway. Yeah, I feel like that works better on the phone than it would on a desktop. Uh, unless the desktop is touchscreen, which is the segue I was looking for. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So last week we talked about uh, a few different radical new technologies that are that are being introduced this year uh, that are mostly around input methods, new input methods. And uh, I won't recap too much, but it was it was you know like the 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 leap motion controller, which is this gestureless sensor, kind of like the like a uh, Wiimote. Like a Wiimote or our incredibly sensitive uh, Xbox Connect, um, and there's this this armband that's kind of like a um, uh, wearable version of that, where you can make these just you know you just wave your hand around in the air basically, and and have your computer understand what you're doing. So both of them give you this this way to interact with digital content in a way that is uh, touchless but also three-dimensional so that, you know, you can, the notion of, of like a, a Z index, a Z axis motion is potentially something you could support in your application uh, instead of the usual, just X, Y. Yeah. And then, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I said, and then, and then we joked around a bit about what our websites look on the back. <laughs> right. <laughs> and lo and behold. <laughs> yeah. Lo and behold. Um, it was, uh, I don't know if it was announced this week, but I saw this week that um, Google has received a patent for a, a 
a phone with a touch sensitive service on the back in addition to all of the other uh, touch sensitive you know all the other sensors on the phone so imagine like uh, the next galaxy s5 or like a nexus 5 uh, would your your actions touching the back of the phone um, you know would could create input and yeah, I I assume you mean like just a just a touch sensitive surface and not a not a secondary display back there. Yeah, no, I don't yeah. I don't think it's a secondary display either. Um, but <clears throat> it's it, so when you think about it, and and I I thought that the iPhone five was going to have this. I like I it, to me it seemed obvious that if Apple was uh, going to do anything, I, I assumed they were going to do something radical. Mm-hmm because they were waiting so long to release the iPhone 5. Yeah, I'm I'm really surprised Apple didn't beat them to the punch on this. Yeah, Apple has a Apple has a similar patent for the tablet where the back edges, the edges of the back are touch sensitive. Mhm. But uh which makes sense on a tablet. I mean, why would you make the whole back surface you know, touch sensitive? Yeah, on a on a 10-inch tablet, you you don't want the whole back surface touch sensitive. Yeah, it would just be unwieldy. Yeah, my cat would just ruin my day. <laughs> yeah, and you can, you know, it makes sense to have like the edges, kind of like the the bezel area, but on the back. Yeah, touch for, sensitive for like gaming like or scrolling and gaming. Yeah, page turns and stuff like that. And so I, I my initial thought about the, the 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 having a touch sensitive back on a phone or backside touch, as we like to call it, um, is that it could create a situation where on a touch device, you now can support hover states because mm. you know where the finger is, but it's not actually touching the content. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, so there's a whole bunch of different, you know, so I tweeted about it and someone was like, like, he's like, everything that I can think of seems really awkward on the back. And, and we kind of had a quick conversation about it and it was because he was imagining that the back would work exactly like the front so that, you know, like the same exact gestures were supported in the same exact way. Yeah. I don't think that is, is really, um, feasible. Yeah, I agree. It would be awkward. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. And, um, also you'd need some kind of visual indicator on the display of where on the back those touches were occurring, were registering. Right, depending on what they do. Yeah. So, <clears throat> if you think of if you think of the in, the entire back in the same way as the uh, front works, and you slid your finger up and down to scroll, and then you tapped to uh, click a link, for example, how would you know where your finger was? <laughs> right. Unless there was a hover state. Right, you're you're really only going to be able to use the back, I would think, for those for those larger sweeping gestures, like maybe a a scroll or a swipe or possibly a a, a pinch. Yeah, so agreed. Right, I think it's I think the back will be sort of um, for coarser gestures, or like you said, more sweeping global yeah. gestures. So like a swipe left, a swipe right. But then the more I was thinking about it, I was like, but you could do some really slick multi-touch stuff that's more intuitive than what we currently have. So we'll give you an example. Right now on Google Maps, uh, the, the newest version of Google Maps that I've got on, uh, at least the one on iOS 5, 
you are, when you view the map, it is, you know, it's like you're in, in space looking straight down. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can actually change it to this sort of, I don't know what it's called, but it's like a horizon view where you put two fingers down on the screen and slide them up and it it gives you a uh, more three-dimensional perspective of what you're looking at yeah like like rotates it on a on a z or on a i guess on the on the x X, right it rotates it on the x but that isn't once you know it it doesn't feel unintuitive but it's not really intuitive because it's not what you would do in the real world and that's kind of like the power of touch interaction is that you're manipulating the content in the same kind of way that you would in the real world where you've got a bunch of pictures and you slide them around with your finger the way you would on an actual desk. Mm -hmm. So I was imagining, and I'm not sure I'll be able to describe this aptly without a visual demonstration, but imagine, if you will, dear listener, that you're looking at a maps application and to switch it into this horizon view or to control that that rotation over the X or even the Y axis, that would be weird on a map. But anyway, <laughs> that would be like, yeah, cute time travel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wormhole. But anyway, if you, if you want to do it on the X axis, you, you could slide your thumb up and your index finger on the back down. So thumb on the screen, index finger on the back, and you just sort of twist the view. Right. So it feels like a pivot. Right. So imagine... So that that's just one example that came off the top of my head. But when you think about how hard it is to even have a conversation about normal touchscreen interface uh, interactions, like like pinch, zoom, you know, what's it called when you have one finger down and another finger moving? And this is just on the front. Yeah. Um, what, what if, you know, on a, like on the Microsoft surface, there are gestures where you put one finger down and then you like rotate your other finger around it in a circle to, to do something different than like a pinch, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Rotate the display and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, (laughs) how do do you talk about that? What kind of, yeah. Yeah. Like even just trying to describe the gesture now is like difficult to like, what do you call it oh that's that's the whole double tap rotate twist pinch <laughs> right and uh, i mean the the pinch steve jobs coined the pinch term or he told yeah. us what to call it because when he when they showed the iphone in 2007 he he, he was demonstrating the um the photos app and he says and, and like this is there's this this is really cool gesture we call it the pinch and he and and really I, th- I think pinch is a bad name for it, but that's, you know, but that's what he called it. So that's what we all call it. Mm-hmm. But when your fingers are going away from each other, when you're doing a reverse pinch, so to speak, it should be called spread or something like that. Oh, I always called that pull. There's pinch and pull. Okay. Yeah. I've seen it called spread. I've seen it called reverse pinch. Um, zoom in. It, it's become so intuitive, to, but that's, that's, that's not naming the gesture. That's naming the reaction. So, yeah. But there's no, like even the even the pinch name, like we don't have a vocabulary even for regular touchscreen interactions. Never mind like multi-touch interactions where you're using like ten fingers. So, so you know this year. Well, I don't know if this is coming this year. I don't know if the 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 touch 
this, the backside touch is coming this year, but, uh, but if it does come, it's going to be like, think about the implications of, of, first of all, even having a conversation about it. Number one, yeah. uh, Google will probably have all of this like predefined as they're thinking about it. They'll have, they'll probably, it'll come out and there'll be names for a lot of the supported gestures. But what, what just just thinking about web development not the broader spectrum of application development in general but just web development what is that going to mean like like how you know right now like you have to right now we have to like sniff for or you know conditionally support touch versus click because if you've got a mm-hmm. responsive website that's going to be used in a touch environment or a non-touch environment you want to support both things. Yeah. So, so now when there are these new gestures on the back, it's like when you're going to need a media query for it, you know, like, like, Oh, if, if back gestures are supported, then we want to enable 3d view of our website. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to wonder. And if initially, if they're just going to come out with uh, the back surface, if it's, if it's just going to mirror, like some of some of those broader front side gestures that we are are used to using like if they're primarily just going to use it for things like detecting a tap for a for a page turn or for scrolling mm-hmm. rather than trying to trying to invent these new new gestures you know, right off right off the bat right yeah i i think that what'll have to happen is that each different application will support back touch in its own way Mm -hmm. because it makes different sense in different places. So, so in the, like, let's say, uh, Chrome for Android, for example. So like a web browser, um, a gesture of, you know, sliding the index finger up and down on the back would scroll the page up and down the same way it does in the front. I would love that. Like yeah. as, a, as a user, I would love that feature because then your finger's not blocking the screen. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. And page turns on on like a, an e-reader, like a Kindle, yeah, right. Kindle app. Yep. Um, you know, but th- then you've got the you've got the question of like accidental touches, and which would be another good yeah. good show title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the takeaway for from all of this is that there's good backside touch and bad backside touch. (laughs) (laughs) I just hope we get a gesture called goose (laughs) (laughs) on goose rotate display. So I don't know. It's just like, it's just, it just goes to show you ladies and gentlemen that we have no clue what we're programming for. You know, it's like, it's like you can't worry about, like in, in, at least in web development in web development you've got content and you've got things that your site does you have services tasks that it can perform you I just can't get overly concerned about the intricacies of a particular device and and how it how it um is going to react like so what i'm saying is like adaptability is is way more important than optimization yeah. device specific optimization yeah you um you, you end up 
end up spending a lot of money on things that that work in a in a very narrow spectrum of places. Right. Yeah. If you, you know, whereas on the other hand, if you're if you're if you try and you know, instead put the effort into doing things like making making your content sort of presentation agnostic and, and making your data easily accessible and that sort of stuff, you're going to get you know, you may not support every feature on every device, but it's going to work. Yeah, and it'll probably work well if you if you code to standards. The people who are developing these new interactions are going to be are going to be trying to conform to the same standards that you're coding to. You know, right. so they can just so they can just take your content and just drop it into to their app however they want to because it'll you know, it'll fit. <laughs> yeah, like Google doesn't isn't gonna isn't gonna release like like backside touch and be like okay, now app developers figure out what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're going to they're gonna have already figured out what to do with it for a web browser anyway. And it's going to have a lot to do with, um, you know, it's not going to be, I'd be shocked if it was something that, that broke from standards. So, so, and this is the reason why people goof on me in, in meetings when I'm like, uh, you know, I want this site working, you know, new project. I want this site to work on a Kindle one e-reader and people are like, that's, this guy's great. Well, how much are we paying this guy? You know, (laughs) (laughs) he's an idiot. But the, the thing, the, the reason why that's valuable is because if it does work there, it's going to work on anything that has even a crappy web, anything that can display the web yeah, it will work. It will be your content will be accessible and like gopher for crying out loud. Like, yes. or, it, or, or, or get this SMS. Nice. Very nice. I'm impressed. I thought before the show started, I thought there was no way we're going to be able to segue between these three <laughs> topics, but you just did it. <laughs> but that is, that is right. So the, Okay, so this is opens up a different can of worms, but it does get to the same point, which is that if you um, if you have content or services you want to expose to the wider population, which obviously you do, that's the that's like a precondition of listening to this podcast is that's what you want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, coding to standards and using progressive enhancement so that your stuff will run in a very, very weak browser environment like a Kindle one is good for everyone. Uh, But that's still, you're still in an HTML rendering environment. You're still in a web browser, even if it's a uh, a lame one, it's not lame. It's good for what it is. But, um, but I think that if you want to really go nuts, uh, that SMS is has been really underused as an application platform. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really been overlooked for that. And even even though it's the the most you know, there's a, there's a lot more people with SMS than than there are smartphones. Yeah, it's auto, it's like the most ubiquitous communication mode on the platform on the, right. on the planet. Right. Yeah, smartphone penetration globally is somewhere around like 10 or 15%. So put it like that. So, you know, there's that 80% of other people who still have dumb phones, but they yeah. have SMS. 
so if you <clears throat> if you are for example a you know some kind of a ngo or government organization that has to reach like like as close to 100% of the population as possible sms is it it's better than email yeah oh yeah yeah it's like i know we've i know we've mentioned it before but i mean you get into especially outside of the us like look at Africa, for instance. The the infrastructure is not there for things like phone lines and broadband and cable modems and things like that. Mm. But there's there's cell towers all over sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. <laughs> Every, yeah. Everybody has cell service, and they don't even have electricity. But like, right, oh. right, they don't have electricity or running water. But you know, they have you know they can SMS. Right. You build a build a charger out of your out of your bicycle and. And, um, you know, charge up your phone and. Yeah. Like that connection to information is like, it's like so jaw droppingly transformative that it, it gives me chills every time I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's, it's crazy to think about, you know, for, for people like you and I who really, really truly love the power of the command line. Oh, SMS is so much fun. Oh, it's the best. It's a little bit arcane and discoverability is a problem. You know, like how do you find out that there's an SMS service at a particular number? And then how do you find out how it works? There's this whole like whole, you know, back and forth of, of, you know, you know, like, you know, man pages kind of like you almost want to set up man pages for your... (laughs) But I, I just think it's wildly underused, and it's I think it's why we both really love Twilio. Yes. Which is a uh, a service which basically makes creating all sorts of uh, I'm not sure what the category is called. It's not really telecommunications in general, but they make all sorts of kind of uh, PBX style. Um, it's kind of like a kind of like PBX as a service. Yeah. That's not exactly right, but you can do all sorts of weird kind of SMS slash voice applications using Twilio for like penny dirt cheap. Uh, And it, you know, you're just off to the races. So to tie that back into the previous conversation, um, if you want to, if you really want to do progressive enhancement, like for real, or, you, you know, especially if you need to reach a, a more global audience or an audience who has very few of them have smartphones, where the U.S. is still only 50% penetration. So even in the U.S., you couldn't use, like, uh, using just a, a web app or a native app uh, to, to for the government to reach the population is insufficient. Um, so you could yeah, use okay. SMS and reach everyone. Yeah, it'd be great for something like an emergency broadcast service mm. yeah or like like i got an automated um i got an automated phone call tonight actually from the uh, local water company that they're going to be flushing the fire hydrants so if you know if i turn on the water i might notice like rust color before the morning like you know uh, yeah that, yeah that's a that's a good point i get phone calls all the time from Kira's school, like, you know, there's a closing there's a delay there's a pto meeting mm-hmm. um, your your kid has this massive ginormous test tomorrow <laughs> yeah i would i would much rather get an sms <laughs> yeah right you want you want because you're you don't realize you're what 
I don't know what the, like a phone call is synchronous and SMS is asynchronous or, or asymmetric, I guess is the, the way people usually describe it. Yeah. Like a, a, a text message is not going to pull me out of what I'm doing unless I want it to like a, like a big loud phone ringing is going to, and, um, you know, I'm going to have a log of it. Mm -hmm. The other day, the other day we got a call from the school system about, uh, oh, they're doing free sports physicals for, for kids going into middle school next year. Mm. And, you know, I said, we need to get one of those for Kira because she wants to join the swim team. And, mm. so, and, and Richard took the call. So, of course, the date and time was immediately forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> now, was it a robot robocall or was it an actual person? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, the, the robocall. And it's, it's I mean, <laughs> it's just so obvious to me. Like, it, it, it should be SMS. Yeah. Like the like robocall it would be is, just as just as easy or easier to, to do SMS. Yeah. And I mean, per with the possible exception of the length of a message like that. Yeah. But frankly, I feel like that should, you know, <laughs> yeah, for that matter, they could, they could text you a URL. A too. URL. Exactly. And that, and the, and the target link would be responsive and it would work in dumb phones. Phone. And yeah. So I, I just like, I just feel like I know we both think that SMS is wildly underused, and when when we um, when we, we haven't talked about Avalio in a very long time, <laughs> but you know we created a, a simple kind of proof of concept around this in the early niche days that uh, just as domain name search, but we created like a half a dozen different clients for it because or we were able to very easily because we started with a sort of API first approach. There's mm -hmm. no real content. Um, so it's just like this API and we set it up so that you could SMS to it. You could, uh, I am it. You could, do we do? I don't think we did email. Um, uh, we talked about it, but we never got around to it. Yeah. It was like email would be so clunky compared to I am or SMS. So why would you bother? Um, but then there were, there were some others, uh, created like a, a Chrome plugin, a TextMate plugin, a command line client. Yeah. Command line client. There's all, there's like a jillion different ways that you could interact with the API. So it was, so it just goes back to that. You know, if you did have an API in the first place, then you could say, you know, you could just roll out an SMS client with like little, very little additional, it'd be like, some overhead, I suppose it depends on the complexity, but, uh, it, it wouldn't be that big a deal. So yeah, the, the heavy lifting is already done. Yeah. All the business logic and all that is, is it would be done in the server and you know, it, it, the whole, the whole, the, the conversation even about the backside touch is like, like coding for that specifically is, is something that you, you should, totally do if you have the bandwidth to do it and you've got somebody to work on the, you know, the clients, you know, the, the client application to, to optimize a particular experience, but that's not mm -hmm. the first thing you should do. The first thing you should do is, is if you do have a content heavy application is get that pure, clean output agnostic, uh, in your CMS and then expose that, uh, via an API. And then you can do, then you could do anything. And then as, as my friend Jeff says, then the world is your oyster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really about having that, that very, very defined separation between the content and the client. 
yeah. or the the back end and the client. Mm-hmm. Yep. the The API approach is. I won't get into it too much, but you know that I've mentioned previously on shows that the uh, response pulling pulling a, a a large sort of enterprise organization into a responsive web design project um, brings up all sorts of it reveals all sorts of weird political and uh, systemic kind of dysfunction because the the whole notion of a responsive website is that it's just it, it just works everywhere it's a one thing it refuses to be bucketed into mobile or desktop or and since there are departments yeah. that handle mobile and desktop and like uh, you know, different IT organizations for each one and different design organizations for each one. It's it's this project that just, like, the organization is just, like, looking around, scratching their heads, like, how do we do this? Yeah, like, who owns this? Yeah, like, who's in charge of this? Who do we even call? You know, like, you know, we've got, like, a, they could have an entire technology stack all the way down to, like, uh, different, different servers. It, like, the whole thing is just, like, it just, it's, like, throwing a, a, a gigantic meteorite. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so one, I think the, the most obvious way forward, at least from a, from an, from an IT standpoint, because that's, it's a problem from an IT standpoint. I think that the API approach is like a very strong way forward because all these IT organizations or all these large organizations are grappling with mobile and you know maybe they sh- maybe they think they should build native apps for I- iOS and Android, or maybe they think they should build a responsive website. But regardless, they're still going to be serving the same content and services to all these people. Yeah, and you can still have still have your mobile department and your your web services department or your desktop department, and have them be in you know, have everybody be in charge of their own and managing their own client. But then you also have, you know, this is your, this is your API people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, so instead of having like, you know, I, I have this visual that I will not be able to aptly describe, but I'm picturing, there's like, like the way it is right now, there's like, there's like, you know, five skinny little trees standing next to each other that connect mm-hmm. nowhere. And like one of them is, is POS. One of them is, uh, is, is dot com, you know, desktop.com. Yeah. We didn't realize it was desktop.com, but that's what it was. It is. <laughs> and then there's mobile and, and they don't, they all top to bottom, they don't communicate. And what it should be is like, there's mighty Oak, <laughs> with like this <laughs> big trunk, which is the API and all of the, it should it should almost literally be like a, a tree because like yeah with with the branching literally <laughs> yeah above and below the ground though because the yeah the API is like the the trunk where it meets the ground and then it should branch out into all these clients above but below all you, your web services yeah you and and tying into legacy systems because there there are all oh, these yeah. like hideous awful things going on with POS in particular but also supply chain. Uh, and, and if you have a big sales organization, probably, uh, um, uh, relationship management systems and basically the whole ERP suite of services. 
and they're all disconnected. They're all purchased at different times. They're all screwed up. Even if you did go out and spend $10 million on SAP, it's still all screwed up. So, you know, it, you can grow. It's like, it's like that, that, that one, your core, it comes down to what's your core offer. Like, what is, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, what does your organization exist for? And, and it gets, it gets super existential. Like I'll be in these meetings and it turns into like, I feel like they should be laying on a couch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, tell me about your mother. <laughs> anyway. So it, it's, uh, it's all figured out. We figured it out. Yeah. We've we solved, solved the internet's problems. Yeah. It's all APIs these days. Yeah. The way to go. <laughs> the, building building my first big big JavaScript heavy client. Well, I won't say first. I built a lot of I built a lot of big JavaScript heavy clients, but not. You know, there's been a there's been a backend web component too different than than just an API. But um, I mean, having having a having I guess having a client that's only JavaScript, HTML, CSS, communicating with with the API, mm-hmm. and I've done a few, but the one I'm working on now is probably the biggest one I've done. And um, you know, it's uh, it's it's nice, and it presents presents a very very different set of challenges from the perspective of of developing the client itself, mm-hmm. which is probably a topic for another show. But um, it's it's really nice. Mm. You know, I can I can work on that client all day and and I can I can mess around with features and I can add features and I can remove features and I can change the way this is implemented and that is implemented and like I can completely break the whole thing and it doesn't matter because at the end of the day the core stuff that the app needs to do still works. It's mm. you know, like a client may be broken, but whatever you know the the app still works <laughs> yeah and the and the i think the key is at least in a large organization is you don't have to have a meeting with the people who are in charge of who own the database right because that's the way it used to be you'd have to like get a meeting with it and be like can i get access to these tables and they're like <laughs> when they finished laughing they would say well maybe we'll make you a view um next september <laughs> and you know it's just like no you couldn't do it. Yeah. And then, you know, the, my, 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 I think the sort of shot heard around the world for APIs was Jeff Bezos's, uh, proclamation in like it was around 2002, I guess, internally that all departments hereby <laughs> here, here, <laughs> all departments from now on will share data and services via APIs full stop. Yeah. And I don't care what the transport mechanism is. I don't care what the language is. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But you're going to, you're not going to have to have a meeting between operations and marketing to share data. The, right. Those days are over. You just, you just query, you just query the operations API or the marketing API. Yes. And, uh, and of all the, of all the things that Amazon does, right. That one is huge. And it, you know, it allowed them to create an efficiency that was so amazing that they spun Amazon Web Services out of it. So they said, yeah. hey, we've created an infrastructure that's so crazy good 
that why don't we rent space on it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they would they would not have gotten to to where they are now without that. Yeah, like think about how weird it is that Amazon that sold physical books through the mail. It was basically mail order books. <laughs> yeah. And is now they, the infrastructure of the internet. Yeah, they they host like what? One third of the internet? Hmm. I don't know how I I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, like when when Amazon, yeah, it's got the one one region has gone down twice since I've been paying attention. Yes. It's like that that original Virginia availability yeah, it's, zone. Yeah, it's their oldest data center. Yeah, that's gone down two times, maybe in the last three years, and yeah. it's like it's like somebody just pulled this giant switch and the internet's off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like what the. You basically, you basically, it's, it turns into Google and Facebook after that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there's no point in going to Google and Facebook about at that point, because all they're doing is talking about Amazon being down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. AWS being down. <laughs> yeah. Like, like it's, it, Heroku is on top. Like there are, there are like hosting services on top of Amazon. So like yeah. entire swaths of the internet go down. Yeah, like you may be, you may be hosting from a totally different company, but there's a very good likelihood that that, that hosting company is renting space from from Amazon. Yeah, because it's so freaking cheap. Yeah. Every day, and just, it just keeps getting cheaper. It just keeps getting cheaper. It's amazing. It gets cheaper, more features, lower cost. It's like that. We're getting. We probably should wrap. Get ready to wrap soon. But the I saw this interview with Bezos uh, at their developer conference. And uh, he, he's, man, he's got a perspective that I think is really eye-opening. Um, and, it's, and it's like slap your head common sense, duh, type of stuff. But the, the, thing, that he, what, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, like, what do you think is going to happen in the next 15 years? And he goes, I, he's like, that's an interesting question to talk about. Like, what, what's going to be new, you know, the backside touch on phones or whatever. But he's like, I'm more interested in what's going to be the same in 15 years. Yeah. So, like, no one's going to say, geez, Jeff, I wish Amazon Web Services was more expensive. Or, geez, Jeff, I wish Amazon Web Services was slower l- slower or <laughs> less stable. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah, that's a that's a good point because it's it's the things that aren't going to change where the, the big money is, is going to be made. <laughs> yeah. He's like, so in any he has this flywheel concept where if you keep, you just put a little bit more energy into making it faster, making it cheaper, making it more stable, make it a little faster, make it a little more stable, make it a little cheaper, add another feature, do that. You just keep doing that before you know it, you've got so much, uh, so much, uh, energy built up into that cycle that you can't, you almost literally can't stop it. Yeah. So if you and and the the thing that would stop it is if it turns out that those choices were wrong. So if you stick with like like we're gonna th- we're gonna double down on backside touch, you know, and we're gonna we're gonna create a startup that's specifically focused on developing gaming applications for phones that have touch on the front and the back. And you might do really well for the first two years. Yeah, until like till bezel touch, or it's like some, or, or until everybody has Google Glass and nobody's touching anything. Yeah, or direct brain, yeah, wave communication. Right, it's built on it's it's 
it's certainly more of a, however popular it ends up being, it's certainly more of a fad than we want lower prices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, the approach of working on the things that aren't going to change, you know, it's, it's not as sexy. It's not, not as romantic. It's sometimes maybe not as fun at times, but mm. <laughs> there, there are needs that people are always going to have. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of safer. You end up with razor thin margins, but it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's safer and you can, it's a, it's, I think it's fair to say that it's a, a more, um, long-term strategy. So for like, for like yeah. a long-term business. Yeah. And speaking of things that people are always going to need, they're always going to need access to your content. <laughs> they're always going to need to be able to display your content. Bringing it back around. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the same concept applied to delivery of information. Yeah, Exactly. Like, like touchscreen can, you know, the scroll friction, that's my pet peeve was people being like, oh, you should go with native apps because the scroll friction on web apps on the iPhone 3G <laughs> is kind of <laughs> slow. So you should, you should change your whole business, like you should change your whole uh, skill set. You should swap all of that web stuff you learned. You should swap all that out. Forget about all that. Just start coding in Xcode. Use Objective-C. Native apps won because the scroll friction is like, it's like on ball bearings, man. It's like so <laughs> smooth. It's buttery smooth. So you should change everything you know so that you can share crop for Steve Jobs. I'm like, God. God, that was the that was the flash argument back in the day, and where'd that get everyone? Yeah, yeah. Even <laughs> even Adobe's not doing anything with Flash these days. No, Adobe's got both of their arms around the web with a big bear yeah. hug. Yeah. So you know, do what you want to do, but the short term thing is is to worry solely about the client experience on a particular device. That's, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's debatable. It depends on what you're trying to build. If yeah. you're building like yeah. a third person shooter, then obviously you're going to build it for, you know, Xbox or whatever. So, right. you know, but, right. and uh, it's, and it's not the, it's not that there isn't value in, in doing that. It's not that there's not value in having a really polished, uh, mobile web app or or in a, a really polished native mobile app there there certainly is yes but that shouldn't be your your only focus it's not a strategy right you know to like release a, a native ios app with a yeah, like, store like, locator in it yeah like your strategy should be okay we want to make this data open accessible easy to use easy to get to and then oh and by the way then we're going to take that and build a really polished native app or build a really polished mobile web app on top of that or you know we're gonna make it a nice android app yeah totally let me i'm gonna pull up a quote this is from uh the people behind gov.uk so this is the the uk government and the they basically did an analysis of um mobile usage for various services, et cetera, et cetera. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, but the quote, the poll quote from it is 
standalone mobile apps will only be considered once the core web service works well on mobile devices. I could not have put that better. Yeah. And to, and to have that come out of the mouth of someone working in government is like, I get all, I get all a flutter. (laughs) I'm like, I'm verklempt. Like someone's listening. Yeah. That's perfect. Like for, for a government organization, the, the key, the core focus should be dissemination of information to the widest possible possible yeah. group of you know the audience. So building like building an iOS like like you just would want to slap somebody for building like an iOS only your whitehouse.gov iOS app only. Yeah. <laughs> and the same what? goes for the same goes yeah. for any big retailer. It's like fine, Walmart have have a native app. Go ahead, but not before you figure out your web presence on mobile. Yeah, Walmart has a really nice mobile web presence. The nicest, in my opinion. Yeah, the surprisingly, nicest. surprisingly good. Yeah, well, they hired Deanna Almeyer and Ben. Oh Albrecht, yeah, so yeah. The guys from Palm. It's gorgeous. Uh, the 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 it's it, it there should be case studies. On it, it's wicked fast. Yeah, it's one. not like bells and whistles, fancy no. pants, animated, do stuff. Right. Gorgeous yeah. eye candy. It's not like eye candy gorgeous, right? But from a usability perspective, and speed, performance, usability, it's it's great. Yeah, and they even have guest checkout. The forms are just so user like touch friendly. It's there's like not, I can't, there's not one thing I would knock. Maybe the color palette, <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's Walmart. What do you want? Yeah. But to imagine them or whoever, you know, to imagine the teams, the number of people involved with getting that live and having it be as nice as it is, is I have a, I have a newfound respect for how hard that is. It's very impressive. But so, so on that point, right? So like Walmart, I'm sure they have native apps. I don't even know. But uh, uh, I do think I did see a link at the bottom of the um, the mobile site to, to get the native app. So, yeah. Yeah. But so like large retailers, which is kind of my um, sweet spot. I, for some reason, I, I attract large retailers. <laughs> <laughs> they love me. Yeah. Uh, but the the so the the thing about uh, native apps versus web apps and the reason why I think you should. A very, I think, a strong argument for starting with mobile web and then maybe doing native after that is that all of these companies have um, really mature, like sort of uh, email marketing campaigns mm-hmm. set up for loyalty customers and for just for opt-in people who are have opted in somewhere. Um, and and recent statistic, forty-one uh, percent of emails now open on mobile. So. So, so that there's two things there. One is is the question about well, should the should the emails be more mobile friendly, for one. And there's sort of a debate about that, like, like well, you know, all these new iOS and Android devices, it's really easy to read an old school HTML email on there. So, mm-hmm. like, should you go to the effort of actually making like a responsive one, or should you go to the effort of making a mobile only one, or whatever? So that's one debate, and I, I frankly don't care. <laughs> yeah. But the the thing that is important is that there are going to be calls to action in that email and and the reaction when someone 
clicks on one or taps on one is it's going to launch a web browser. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it. On, and, you know, 41% of the time, <laughs> that's yeah. going to be on a phone. Right. And is it going to go to your, it, like, this zoomed out reverse telescope view of your desktop site? Yeah. Or are you, you going to, what are you going to do? Are you going to redirect to the, the, the home page of your mobile site? You know, which is like complete, you just completely yeah, complete destroy waste. your funnel. Yeah, it's complete waste. Because that's what, I mean, I don't want to name names, but that's what happens right now. Uh, someone I'm working with where if somebody clicks on a link and they're on mobile, it, it the link is like a deep link to their desktop site. But as soon mm-hmm. as the server sniffs that it's a phone, it just redirects you to the top level of the mobile site. Yeah. It's like... 40, 41% of the time. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> so, and that was a decision that was made before the number was 41%, but now's the time to, now's the time to fix it. Yeah. And now's the time to go to bed. Yes, it is. That is right. I still have to build an Ikea cabinet. Tonight? Before I go to bed. And I have to migrate some server stuff, so... Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I still have a couple of things to do, too, actually. I may end up not going to bed tonight. So I have to have to um, be up in three hours to get Kira on the bus. God, no rest for the wicked. <laughs> Tomorrow's my busy day. <laughs> <laughs> I like to I like to prepare for my busy day by staying up all night. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a like a like a practice warm up <laughs> round. <laughs> So that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for episode 49 of the Niche Podcast. Yes, getting close to 50. That's right. Getting ready for that. We have to get ready for that live show. Yeah. Hopefully we'll do it before the live show. Yeah. Get ready, that is. (laughs) (laughs) By staying up all night. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right. See you later. Night.